0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon 2.0, and it's really good to be back with you after these past few weeks. If you've been keeping up with my latest shenanigans, well, then you know that During these past several weeks, I've been more or less preoccupied with moving to a new apartment. Since our landlord raised our rent once again this year, we were finally forced to find another apartment. And that was after living in our last place for eight years. So you can imagine how much cargo we had to move. (laughs) And this is to a second story apartment. So uh, it was a back-breaking effort. But uh, we're now in a much smaller apartment. And, well, I've had to put my library of almost a thousand books along with over a dozen cases of tools, into storage. And that also included several dozen boxes of my journals and unpublished writing. Hopefully, uh, I'll be able to reunite with my books, tools, and other sentimental stuff again one day. But for now, outside of my clothes and computer, the rest of my cargo is all digital. However, I do have with me the last 500 books that I've read because, well, they're all on my Kindle, (laughs) which is a lot easier to move. Now, over the last couple of months, uh, particularly during the live salons on Monday nights, I've also talked about my plans for the future. And since they are in flux at the present moment, it, uh, it seems that some of our fellow saloners are quite confused about where I am and what my plans are. You see, uh, two months ago, I was considering a move to Orcas Island with my oldest son. My thought was to live there during the summer and return to San Diego during my granddaughter's school year. However, those plans have now changed, and instead of Orcas Island, my son wants to move to Port Townsend, Washington, where he already has some friends. And after checking it out, I now think that Port Townsend is also a better fit for me as well, because I want to become more involved in sailing once again, and that seems to be the perfect place to do so. Well, now our plans have become a bit more complicated in the past two weeks because the company that my son has been working for these past years just merged. And along with a bunch of other employees, his position was terminated. Well, now Chris has to regroup in Florida for a year or so, while we both save enough money to afford to move to Washington. So the bottom line is that for at least the next several years, I'll still be living here in San Diego County, producing podcasts, writing more books, and hosting a live salon every Monday night. And I think this is all going to be really perfect as long as you decide to stick with me while I get the live salons better organized and uh, have featured speakers join us several times a month. But that's enough about me for a while. Right now, we've got an interview to listen to that I am anxiously waiting to play for you. Thanks to my good friend, Lex Pelger, I'm going to be able to podcast some fresh new material for us to enjoy while I continue to get settled and uh, to travel to speak at the Convergence Conference at the end of this month. So today's interview is a perfect way to begin this short series of podcasts from the Salon 2.0 track. So now here is Lex Pelger, who will introduce today's program.
1: Uh, the colonial powers, uh, they assumed that we were in cahoots with this guy to create a revolution using the psychedelics.
2: I'm Lex Pelger, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Before the hippies, it was the beatniks and jazz musicians who experimented with strange, mind-altering substances. Those are the cats who inspired Gunther Weil, Gunther escaped the Holocaust as a child. He helped Timothy Leary at the Concord Prison Experiments work with LSD and convicted felons. He was deported for associating with political rebels in the old British colonies, and he helped record Aerosmith's first album. He's seen it all, and these stories are fascinating as they are important. Strap in for two hours of adventure with the cheerful tripper, Dr. Gunther Weil. Hello, everybody. I'm very happy to be here with Gunther Vile. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Happy to be here.
2: Before the story really gets exciting, when you get to Cambridge in 1960, can you tell me about where it was that you grew up and what it was that you thought you were going to do when you were a youngster?
1: I came to with my parents in this country in '39 as a uh, as a Holocaust escapee, you know, a, fan, a refugee, essentially. Uh, we immigrated on. On what was, if not the last boat, certainly one of the last boats. So my early childhood, which I've explored in some psychedelic experiences and some of those experiences, which were actually pre-verbal, were very formative, you know, in in in, in my own psychological conditioning uh, over many years. Um, and um, so I grew up in Milwaukee. Uh, and uh, I attended Kenyon College in Ohio when it was a small men's college, or 500 guys. Uh, a very good liberal arts background with a, also a strong party school. <laughs> the women came in on the weekends, you know, or we went to a couple of, of uh, female colleges in the vicinity, you know, or whatever. So, But I had a, a great education, and then I, uh, I was... Uh, uh, given a, a Fulbright fellowship to, to go live in Europe for a year in Norway. I was, there was a philosopher there who was working on psychological research. He it was combining philosophy and psychology, and I had a dual major at Kenyon in that, so I went to work with him. And I ended up spending a lot of time in Paris and uh, <laughs> playing hooky from uh, Oslo, which at that time was, Coming out of being a th- kind of a little bit of a third world country before they discovered oil in the North Sea, so it was a very you know it was beautiful there, wonderful people, but it was a little boring. So of course I gravitated to Paris. And I, my background earlier than that, I had fallen in love with bebop and jazz. And you know my uh, I come from a different era. I come from the uh, the Beatnik area era, not not the hippie era. You know, so my reference points were Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, who I then met. Later with Tim and you know and a bunch of you know a bunch of people from from the Bay Area from San Francisco in particular and internationally, so i uh, had an interesting background and when i when I arrived at Harvard after the year in in oslo uh, i was uh, I went to meet my uh, faculty advisor, who happened to be timothy leary i didn 't know who he was i 't know anything about him, and uh, we met in a uh, in a uh, the Center for Research in Personality, which was on, had an auspicious address. It was Five Divinity Avenue in <laughs> <laughs> uh, in Cambridge. You know, it's a colonial house. You know, and uh, I walked in the door and I was looking for his office. I was expecting, you know, you know, a normal office. Well, turns out he because there was a space space shortage. He had been delegated to a. Uh, a former utility closet on the first floor, and he kind of had a little desk there. It was a very small space, but he was very engaging and and uh, but he made it clear from the very beginning that uh, his research focus had shifted in the previous year. I't I, you know if you know his background, but he he had he was very well known in the field of psychological testing and theory of personality his his test actually multi dimensional personality test was later administered to him in, when he was in prison, actually, years later. That's like a footnote on some of the history. So he, uh, he was very clever and very ahead of his time in terms of that particular diagnostic. Uh, but he made it clear to me that he was no longer assuming that that was why, maybe why I would be interested in working with him. But he dissuaded me of that quickly and said that the previous summer he had been in Kornavaka. He had taken the mushrooms uh, with a, uh, along with a few other people, Frank Barron, who was this good friend of his from the University of California, played a also a significant role early in, in in our research around creativity. Uh, so uh, he said to me, "This is what I'm interested in. I'm interested in consciousness. I'm interested in in the use of psychoactive substances." Uh, if you're interested in that, I'd be delighted to have you as my graduate student. If not, you're you're better off finding somebody right away. I said, sign me up, so uh, because my background, as I said earlier, I had been involved with bebop I, in Paris, where I hung out went, during my my uh, Fulbright. I got to know a lot of amazing artists, Bud Powell and and uh, you, you know people Oscar Pettiford and the great bebop jazz players from that era, a lot of whom were expats. And uh, there was a big expat community in Paris there in the literary and jazz and, you know, the whole scene. And I, I stayed for a few months in a small hotel on Rue Saint-Germain, where, where there were like three jazz clubs on that street, right on the left bank. Up the street was was Sartre's Cafe, where he would hang out, you know. And so it was a really interesting time. And I was like, you know, in my 20s and like really into it, you know. So I said, "Sign me up," you know, because I had already had experience smoking marijuana with jazz musicians when I was in my late teens in Milwaukee and Chicago. You know, when I would go to hear people play, I heard Miles and Coltrane in Chicago early on, and you know, it was a whole different scene then. Even the even the racial issues were they were always there, but. For a, a young white guy to go into the black a black neighborhood to hear bebop was pretty unusual, but it was so unusual that people were just kind of protective and friendly, and and you know almost kind of amazed that, that someone like you know, my skin color and background would you know go to them right to hear those guys play. So so I said, of course, yeah, sign me up. So so within the first two weeks of my graduate program. I had my first psilocybin experience with Tim, and I got married. All of that happened in the first two weeks of you know of graduate school. Um, so the first experience with Tim was at his home in Newton. He lived. Uh, he had rented a big old house in Newton, Mass. As you know, Newton is a wealthy suburb of Boston, and a lot of old. Old big mansions there, and he had rented one of those. And Frank Barron, who was on a sabbatical from the University of California, Berkeley, was living with Tim. And there was an initial session with uh, a lot of interesting people. Uh, There was a black psychiatrist who was gay, who was uh, the chief psychiatrist at Concord Prison, and who led a double life. He had this beautiful black wife, you know, beauty contest. It was his front, basically, you know, I and mean, he was a character and a half. And uh, he ended up, because shortly after that we started the prison project at Concord, which you've probably heard about, which I'm happy to talk about in, in this session today as well. And uh, a number of other people. And so, you know, my my background in philosophy and psychology became embodied in a way by, I actually I went beyond the conceptual reality of, of those fields of knowledge and I had my first experience of first out of body experience and my first experience of the kind of intense aesthetics of psych of specifically of psilocybin which you probably know is had among multiple dimensions what I experienced a la also the mescaline you know question of mescaline is a very intense sensory aesthetic dimension to that particular but it was, it just blew me away, and, and it was really positive. And all of the philosophical and psychological and the beginning of spiritual themes that I was later to explore in much more depth became, like, alive for me in a way that I had never had before. So that was my first, you know, my first experience there. With a, And then there were a number of other experiences and sessions. We were doing sessions, I would say, almost weekly for 3 or 4 years while i was there uh, so it was with a you know range of people coming in and out from hollywood from politics from sciences from all walks of life who were uh, drawn to to our work basically And so there were a handful of us there uh, tim and tim primarily and then of course richard alpert now known as ramdas for many years and we're good friends i we see each other Whenever I'm in Ma, we try to get there once a year and spend some time with him. And, uh, you know, we continue to trade stories. Last time I was there, actually, last year, uh, he was coming out of a physical therapy session where I was about to enter. We have a mutual friend there who's was a wonderful uh, PT. And he caught my eye looked at me, and it wasn't the first time that we would see each other in, in that context. And the first thing out of his mouth was he looked at me and said, I really missed him. <laughs> and it was so sweet, you know, it was so genuine. And, and he's at a place now in consciousness which is is really uh I would say really refined and really present, really alive, you know, his uh, his 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 long many year desire uh, to become a embodied guru actually happened actually, you know, and he really, he really became who he wanted to be for a lot of years. And so he's very genuine and very extremely present and kind and loving. And his mind is very alert and very clear. He has a little difficulty sometimes expressing there's a gap between his ideation and his articulation uh, as a result of the stroke, you know, but, but it also gives him a, a certain, Weight also to his words because the words are are crafted. They're they're they're, uh, they're they're presented in a way that have substance and weight and you know intention behind it. It's not just free associating on some trip, you know, or or preempting what the next person is saying. It's a it's a very the quality of presence is very 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 clear. So um, so it was Richard. At the, you know, I, I still occasionally call him by Richard because I know I know him from that period, right? And Ralph Metzner, uh, another guy named George Litwin, uh, who ended up spending some years at the at the Harvard Business School after the psychedelic period, uh, and then a lot of other people who were a little bit more on the periphery. But it was basically the kind of the core group of of uh, people that were uh, kind of driving this apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> Were Tim and Dick and Ralph and George and myself basically, you know? So uh, I've lost touch with George. I, I think he's still living in, in the East Coast, in the uh, south of Boston, uh, near, near Plymouth, in that area. I'm not sure. I see Ralph occasionally, uh, not that often, and I, I do see, uh, you know, Ramdas, Richard, uh, almost yearly when we we take some time and go to Maui to get out of the cold so that was that was the beginning, basically uh, being Tim being my advisor at meeting in the utility closet, which was his office, and then proceeded almost immediately within a week or two with my first psychedelic session and then uh, then it went on until it stopped. You know and We all know that story and i 'm happy to shed some color on that too if you 're interested
2: uh, well to begin i 'd be curious yeah. since you were such the forefront before us even in the public consciousness. What did your team learn about set and setting and these psychedelics in the early years of giving sessions to all manner of people?
1: That became clear at the very beginning. Uh, and also, for, it became clear experientially. And also, as, as we were studying reports of people that were doing research on, on what was then called psychotomimetic drugs, psychotomimetic, right? psychosis-mimicking drugs. So there was a psychiatrist in Boston, uh, who was a, a, a German psychiatrist. He looked like a character out of a silent movie with a kind of, you know, not, what do they used to call A monocle, you know, and very stiff, you know, and Wrinkle, and, uh, and Max Wrinkle, that was his name. And he was among another, a group of people who turned out were funded by the CIA to do this work on psychotomimetic drugs. And they would give uh, LSD to a, uh, a patient patient, right, even the word patient right, was was used, or, or you know, or a volunteer experimenter or whatever, uh, in a, essentially in a hospital setting, in a, a, you know, white room with fluorescent lighting, with, you know, steel cots, and, uh, and, you know, white aprons, and syringes, and a lot of equipment, and lo and behold, they created psychosis, because that's what they were looking for. And the setting predisposed itself to a, a dissociation. Dissociation would, would be like a uh, actually a creative escape from the you know, from the from that scene, if you will, right? But they, they created a lot of suffering and a lot of you know psychosis mimicking reactions and responses in people. Uh, and then, as I said, you know, we were aware of that because people would come to us when they began to discover that we were doing things in a different way, and we had started to read widely. We became very interested in the Curandero tradition and the in the tradition of psychedelic use in many different cultures. So people like Gordon Wasson, you know, the banker, the retired banker who funded at Schultes, who wrote a major book on on the magic mushrooms. Uh, and many other people, anthropologists and, and uh, healers and other people who had, we read read stories about them, we read a lot of literature. Uh, we just, and then Tim really in his own brilliance uh, uh, arrived at this insight that, that the uh, setting in which the experience occurs and the set or the expectation that you have going into it constitutes about 95 or 99 percent of what happens. The, there's also a fact that has to do with the purity of the substance that you're taking, you're ingesting. Right? That that's a small element compared to the the power of the uh, expectation in the environment. And um, so it became clear to us that 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 in order to for our own experiences and our own well-being and the well-being of the people who came to us to explore. Consciousness that we needed to create that kind of setting, and we did that. We, you know, we uh, used a lot of Indian prints and incense and music and all the available, you know, sensory tools. Right, to, that all classic, all great ritual basically makes use of sensory impact. Right, to create, uh, to create a, a uh, altered consciousness, right, or an opening in consciousness, if you will. So the set and setting which is now, you know, the kind of norm of the work that is being done by maps and other groups uh, in this renaissance that we're experiencing now, that's a given, you know. And just uh, But early on, we uh, we rediscovered it. I should say we rediscovered something that's always been known because in indigenous cultures, uh, you know, the use of these substances in indigenous cultures was always utilized in a, in a uh, highly sacred and, and meaningful and purposeful way. And, you know, and so the, for the most part, we approached it that way. You know, and we had fun and games, too, along the way. But, but, but for the most part, our intention was to, to really research and discover. And so in the course of that, uh, we, uh, we did a lot of interesting projects. Um, we ended up uh, uh, in the second year... Uh, we made a uh, an arrangement with the Department of Mental Health and the Corrections Department in Massachusetts to administer psilocybin to a group of inmates at Concord Prison, which was a maximum security prison. Uh, which at the time we were doing this was, I think, over 100 years old. It's, it's like a scene out of some horror, gothic horror movie. You know, this this prison. Uh, I mean, you know, dark gray walls and you know, and gigantic. You know iron gates and clanging and sounds, and you know it was like it was really like a like a scene out of out of the inferno you know so they would so we made an arrangement with them, and there's a there 's a history in in criminology basically in in the prison work of of convicts volunteering for the drug experiments and often these were life-threatening or or potentially harmful because they're early-stage experiments by pharmaceutical companies, they would get what they called in the vernacular time off. They would get time, good time, basically. That was what it was called, I believe. They would get time off their sentence. So the administrators, you know, in in the prison system and the Department of Mental Health, they they just put us in that, box of being drug experimenters and they didn't know from psychedelics or you know as far as they were concerned it was harvard university It's all they really needed <laughs> and a few phds and the door was open so we would drive there early in the morning we'd get from boston to concord is about a 20 minute drive uh, from cambridge to boston is about 20 to, to concord about 20 minute drive we'd get there at eighty in the morning They'd let us in through the initial gates, multiple gates, and we'd walk through this courtyard and to the back of the prison where there was a hospital ward. It was a room, oh, I would say maybe uh, maybe a twelve hundred square foot room, maybe a little larger, and with a lot of different cots. and uh, And we did our best to kind of, you know. Uh, Bring in a few Indian prints and the incense. They didn't really want us to do the incense, so we couldn't do that. But we did the best we could to kind of dress it up a little bit, you know, given the context, physical context. And so, and then the, there would be a group of volunteers, of cons who were volunteering. Most of them uh, had already a, uh, a, a release date. Uh, because uh, part of the rationale for the work we were doing was predicated on the idea that we, would, we were attempting to see if we could lower the recidivism rate, which historically is around the mid-70s, 72 to 75% recidivism rate. Just as a footnote on that, it, was, it wasn't long before we were there, before Tim realized and we realized that the prison system is like basically like graduate school it 's like where we're young criminals go to learn the craft, basically and they 're taught by older criminals and it 's just a repeating pattern a self fulfilling pattern you know and that to break that uh, uh, was very challenging. You, you, the initial break would be through uh, through the psychedelic you know, understanding, if you will uh, and so these were cons I said who had release dates, there were generally about ten or twelve in the room. Uh, half would get a placebo, half would get, you know, psilocybin. Tim or I or Ralph, and we would alternate. One, one section would be Ralph and Tim, and the next one would be Tim and I. Occasionally, Ralph and I would do it together. Uh, and one of us would take psilocybin, the other would take a placebo. And, and uh, of course, we were pretty good navigators at that point. We knew pretty quickly what was going on. And uh, and we'd proceed for the next seven, eight hours locked in this back ward of a prison with these tough guys who, you know, had been sentenced for a variety of, of you know, of issues and violations and crimes, and we had a lot of really powerful experiences with these guys. One of the first things that happened was the distinction between doctor and patient disappeared. <laughs> it's like, so the, the doctor-patient came, you know, like it you know, didn't have, couldn't sustain itself in that Right, oh, <laughs> in that God. setting, God. so so Tim was like right away, you know pointing that out to everybody, and everybody kind of chuckled about that and 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 again, the sudden set setting, you know, given the really horrific lives a lot of these men had lived, uh, the psychological conditioning, the wounding, the trauma. It was amazing some of the, the the psychic breakthroughs that we had, you know, of tears and laughter and hugs, and, and it was just amazing. Uh, people came to terms with their with their lives, basically, you know, with a degree of compassion and understanding. And there were like some bad trips too. I had a bad trip there. I had like one trip there where I um, I was speaking uh, at one point. I I, I got a little I got on a little bit of a, of a you know, of a. I'm trying to say here, a, a little bit of a run. You know, I, I I felt empowered, and I was, I was kind of preaching, mm-hmm. and uh, and I saw, like, I was looking out through my eyes, and I saw I had I had an audience of these, you know. Ralph was kind of looking looking at me a little bit strange, and these these guys were just I I had captured them hypnotically, basically in terms of my you know ideation and my communication. And and that went deeper and deeper, and I was kind of fascinated by the power that I was channeling there. And then suddenly, what came in was this uh, this understanding that I was that I was basically manipulating them. That's the take I had, and and I uh, and I, I felt this tremendous shame and and, and feeling of, of of what am I doing here? You know, uh, I felt really badly that I had that caught in that identity, and, and I collapsed, kind of, uh, you know, I, I swooned, and I, I went unconscious, and uh, the next thing I know, I'm laying on a cot, on one of the cots, I can see it now as I'm speaking, I'm laying on the cot, and I see these, uh, you know, faces above me, looking at me with, with concern and with love and with attention. <laughs> And these these are the cons, right? Who I'm yes. supposed to be, and and the complete role reversal. I'm laying there like you know, yeah. needing their help, and they're assuring me that everything's be okay, and with a lot of loving presence, you know. Uh, so that was one example. You know, it was another example of one day when I was working with a uh, uh, with a guy named Jimmy Kerrigan, and uh, he and his brother were Irish. Mafia. They had been in jail most of their life from their early twenties. He was in his late forties at that point. Gnarly, tough, Irish, you know, hitman. And you know, and these these guys had done everything. And um, so I I was working with him. He was on a cot, laying down, and I was attempting to be a guide for him. And he was almost catatonic. You know, he was like very stiff. He would occasionally glance at me out of the corner of his eye. It was like a, with a lot of fear and aggression, and I just I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was, you know, I was just let him alone. So I sat there trying to hold his hand. He wouldn't, you know, it was really tough. So I, I was completely mystified, and I didn't feel good about it. But So two weeks later, we would come back, and we would do a debriefing. Inter- we did intermittent debriefings between the sessions. And at that point, he was back. He had clarity, and he was, he was back in, embodied. And he shared with me that he had fallen into a paranoid trance where he believed that we were actually manipulating them using a, a form of truth serum, that the psychedelics was like a form of truth serum to discover all the crimes that he had committed he had never been arrested for. And he was planning to have me killed. He was he was scheming in that moment there, in that those moments laying on the cot, how to have me executed <laughs> by his buddies on the outside so there would be no trace of Gunther Weil, you know, and no reporting of, uh, you know. And we both laughed about that right? because it was so insane, so, you know. I, we both found it, in, in, you know, it's hard to believe, but we both found it like, like I kind of found a dark humor in that, you know. So fast forward years later, I'm uh, I have a faculty appointment at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and an administrative appointment. And uh, it's late in the afternoon, and I I get a call, and it's Jimmy Kerrigan, and he said, Gunther, I'm out. I'm on you know I'm on probation. Uh, I'd like to come and talk to you. I said, Great, Jimmy. Uh, you know, how about I'm pretty busy till early this evening. How about coming by then? And he said, "Great." So he shows up in my office at the university, and he walks in, and we begin talking. And he tells me he's just violated parole, and he's on the lam, and he's going to be leaving the state, and, and I'll never see him again. And that that his his career as a criminal probably wouldn't change. It would no longer be violent. He would no longer commit any violent crimes. But that basically that was his karma, his path. That was his destiny and he thanked me for the work that we did together at at the, at the prison project a few years earlier a number of years earlier and we embraced and he left and i never heard from him again but it was that kind of relationship with another human being that went beyond the you know the title the name the status the bank account the it was just a human to human connection you know at a fundamental level, with no judgment about each other at all. it was just just a lot of love, basically and so so we had a lot of experiences. Ralph and Tim and I we had a lot of experiences along those lines with those guys and and actually uh, uh my uh, friend uh, Bruce Poulter, who's about to speak, Uh, uh, we were reminiscing a little bit about that not long ago because uh, the uh, the the founder of Maps, Rick Doblin, was a graduate student at that time, I believe, at BU, and he we met because he wanted to do a follow up study on the Concord Prison Project, and uh, for those listeners who are listening to this podcast. if you do a Google search on the Concord Prison Project you'll find stuff on Wikipedia on that but Rick did a, an initial uh, master's thesis or a paper on that and that's how we met and we convened a meeting of the cons that were the ex-cons that were still living that we could find at Tim's house in Beverly Hills uh, and We had about seven or eight people quite a few years later and traded some stories about that whole epoch. And, and Rick helped organize that. So.
0: Gunther, could you talk about the this idea of truth serum? Because there is reality in that, right?
1: Yes, yes. But it, it isn't the kind of... I forgot that the... Uh, you may know, like the biochemist, the, the technical name of truth serum, the, the, the substance they use. Uh, that... That has a, a completely different set of receptor sites and reactions than this. Certainly, the psychedelics are a truth serum, but in a different me- sense of the word truth. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like experiencing not the not the truth or falsity of an event, right, say, or, but the the relative truth or congruence or falsity uh, of of one's experience, right, one's life, mm-hmm. right. And that so it has a I'm use, I'm reframing the the word truth here in the context that we're speaking now. You know, is it? It's not about whether I committed this event or not, or if I have a memory of that's re- being t- re- triggered of that event. That can happen. And it can be a traumatic recall. It often does. Mm-hmm. But again, it's a, a very different set and setting that. That is operating here. It's not like some investigator trying to extract something from me. <laughs> right, so. And sodium pentothal. that's right. Yeah. That was it. Th-
2: yeah. Um, is what they traditionally think of. But a lot of this work using psychedelics as a truth theorem was being done during World War II and in the 50s already. Mm-hmm. There was a lot um, about using these psychedelics like that. And through the course of this, I was curious what it was like for your team to realize that there was more and more federal research. Going on at a dark level, using these things. We didn't wrong. really
1: know at that time, uh, and I didn't really discover that until quite a few years, la- years later. Even, I mean, even the work being done uh, on the psych- psychotomimetic, we—I had no idea. I can only speak personally. I had no idea that there was CA backing. All that stuff came out later—the MK Ultra experiments, all of that—quite a few years later. And then, and Tim was somewhat implicated in that, uh, according to some people uh but uh, i again i had no knowledge of that we were we were just kind of uh, blazing trails basically we we were we were going to change the world through psychedelics <laughs> and uh, through that and the, uh, <laughs> the the Concord project came up as one just one among many different things we did you know uh every week people would come in from all over the world uh uh Arthur Kessler, a famous author from that period, who was had written a lot about creativity, he came in, did a section with Tim, and had a bad trip, and left with a with a very negative view of, of of Tim and the psychedelics. You know, he had a really just had a really bad trip. <laughs> and we had politicians, we had, uh, I mean, and, you know, people from the entertainment industry and musicians. Uh, years later, when uh, Tim and Dick were living in Millbrook, New York, under the auspices of the Hitchcock family, uh, Peggy Hitchcock and her two brothers, which were part of the uh, Mellon family and the American very wealthy dynastic family. Uh, Peggy uh, and met Tim and, and, uh, and Richard in New York. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time. We were living in Cambridge, Boston, but we spent a lot of time in New York City. She was very connected into the New York social scene and into into the arts, into music, was very close with Miles Davis, with Charlie Mingus, Dizzy Gillespie, and those people, and so a lot of those people came to, do, to Millbrook to do uh, psychedelics with us, and I got to know a number of them. I had a couple of experiences with Charlie Mingus, which were really interesting, you know, and uh, we, we just had a really nice connection, a real human connection. So one night, uh, uh, I was—I had been living in Milbury. I—I—I I was given a teaching position by Abe Maslow at Brandeis uh, in 1965. I, I, I barely got out of Harvard because there was the—you know—the gates closed, right? And Tim got fired, and Dick got fired. Tim got fired. Uh, you know, the faculty were in an uproar. There's a whole story here about. Andrew Weil, my namesake, you know, which you're interested, I'll give you. That became public in recent years, his role in that, and I can share a couple of insights about that. But uh, so there was a closing of those gates, and, and I had a couple of protectors there, a faculty, senior faculty who, who knew me, who trusted me, and one of whom actually knew my father in Germany, who was helped get my father out of Germany, uh, uh, because he had he had read some of my father's research in German on, on on synesthesia. My father was an expert on synesthesia, which is you know hearing hearing uh, seeing sounds and 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 hearing colors and you know that kind of thing. Where you cross modality of sensors. And my father was an early student and researcher in that area had no experiences with psychedelics at all, you know, was just interested in that. My father had a lot of artistic leanings. He was a violinist and a pianist, and he had a Ph.D. in psychology and master's degree in chemistry, physics, and math also. He was a very interesting man, my dad. And so he, his early writings uh, came to the attention of Gordon Allport, who was a senior psychologist at Harvard, was a leader in the field of, of studying prejudice, and, had, and was a Quaker. And he helped get us out of Germany by getting my father a teaching position at a small Quaker college in in, uh, in Nebraska, where we first when we first left Nazi Germany, that we arrived in New York, we moved right out to Nebraska to the plains, and that was you know my earliest memories. I was two and a half years old. We we're about from that period. So he helped kind of ensure that I could get out with a PhD. Otherwise, I would have been you know excommunicated. So he helped because he was very senior, he was tenured, he was he was internationally known. And also another psychologist there uh, uh, who uh, had been a uh, student of Jung, had been analyzed by Jung. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to remember his name now, he's very famous. He, did, he invented the TAT, you know, the uh, thematic apperception test. Uh, he's, there's a park in New York City named after him and his family. Uh, and he wrote a book on, on Moby Dick, a psychoanalytic study of Moby Dick. Uh, I'll come up with his name before. The- hey! <laughs> so, uh, and he had taken psychedelics with Tim, actually. And I actually interned with him the summer I arrived before the fall that I started at Harvard before I met Tim that first week. I had actually studied with with this gentleman. Again, I'm just, I'll try to remember for the end of this interview. Uh, so I, I was able to get out with a PhD, and 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 resu- resume my life or start a life basically. And Abe Maslow gave me my first teaching position at Brandeis because he had he was at that point focused on the, the study of peak experiences, and we were of course in the business of creating peak experiences. So he uh, was fascinated. He was like a moth to the flame with us. You know, he was, he was kind of entering. You know, it scared him, but he was also intrigued. Yeah. So so he and I met a number of times. I had dinner with him with his, with his wife, Bertha, and his daughter. It was a little girl at that point. She lived in Boulder, apparently, for years. Uh, and she died quite a number of years ago, uh, his eldest daughter. Mm-hmm. And he offered me a teaching position, and he, he expended a fair amount of political capital in, in, with his colleagues. In doing so, people don't realize that Abe Masna was not considered, you know, uh, a hero, so to speak, at that time within his own department. He was a head of his time, like most prophetic people are. And it was a department of psychology that was dominated by psychoanalysts on the one hand and cognitive psychologists on the other. And he was somewhere in the middle doing humanistic self-actualization work. So they didn't, neither, neither of those two groups who hated each other, they equally disliked him. And so... Although he was head of the department at that time, so, as I said a moment ago, he expended some political capital in getting me there and uh, in in the course of teaching that year i I realized i really wasn't didn 't really want to be there, you know, and my parents were very chagrined because i you know being a nice Jewish intellectual family, they were like thrilled that I was given a teaching position at the first Jewish university in the country, you know, and uh, which, by the way, there's a backstory here is that Dick Alpert's father was a benefactor and a contributor to Brandeis, actually. He was one of the, sat on the board of directors of Brandeis. He was very eminent. He owned the uh, railroad, basically, uh, you know, the, I've forgotten which railroad, but. So Richard grew up. He, he talks a lot. That he's referred to that often. Having his his own his father had his own railroad car, you know, basically. <laughs> so so because Richard grew up with that kind of wealth. He had an airplane, had a small single engine airplane. He had collected antiques. He was driving one of the early Mercedes. He was living the you know gay bachelor's life in in Cambridge. Uh, to the hilt, and and then when he met this madcap Irishman, his world completely turned upside down. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was uh, it's funny. So it was. You know, this was the group of people, and and uh, I uh, I, t- I realized early at, in my career at Brandeis that I really wanted to be with Tim and Dick, who meanwhile I had had moved to Millbrook, New York, under the auspices and the the uh, support, the patronage of the uh, Hitchcock family and the Mellon family on this 30,000-acre estate in Milbrook, New York, that had been built by the uh, a man by the name of Diedrich, I believe, who brought the gas lamp to New York, and it was a multimillionaire of his era. And he recreated this Italian villa in this enormous, you know, the expansive and spacious uh, and very luxurious estate. So we were ensconced in, in, in one of the large homes on the estate. There were like 40 rooms, and, uh, and that's where they were holding forth when they got kicked out. I hung around for another year to finish my degree, as I said earlier, under difficult circumstances, but protected. So, and then when Abe gave me that teaching offer, I took it. But midway into the year, I realized that, you know, I actually want to be with these other guys in Millbrook, mm-hmm. So I stayed for the year. I resigned my position, and Abe was very chagrined and unhappy. That and my parents, you can imagine, you know, were were like distraught. But they were, as always, they were supportive at the end, and uh, and uh, they came to actually visit me at at Millbrook at one point. I'll tell you that story. And so I, my wife at that time, and I, and I had two young children, um, my son, uh, who was I think maybe, uh, three years old and my daughter, Rachel, five years old. Uh, they're now in their mid fifties and, uh, they, uh, they, we, we packed a, a Ford station wagon and, and left Cambridge and moved to, uh, Millbrook, New York in upstate New York. And, uh, we had a couple of bedrooms there and, you know, we were living there with lots of other people. Uh, and, and I proceeded to start my life there. And, uh, so one day, uh, my, as I said earlier, my parents were were fearful of what I, the decision I had made, and so they wanted to come and see me, and they they weren't hesitant to visit Melbrook at all. In fact, my father, having been a scholar, you know, and a researcher. Uh, became a subscriber to the Psychedelic Review, which I was editing, and he was very proud. <laughs> he was proud of me as, as an editor of you know <laughs> this magazine, and, <laughs> and and he had you know he had he had a collection at home in in his home in Milwaukee of you know uh, we we published it for about three or four years I think he had them all yeah all the editions there, and so he came and and Tim was very generous and very kind and and very loving. And showed them around, and you know he tim could Tim could be the perfect host and gentleman on at one moment and the next moment be the most irascible unpredictable nasty uh you know short tempered irish drunk you know, and you never you didn't know who would show up moment to moment you know, but he also was very traditional in a way, you know having been raised in the Catholic and uh in certain kind of Mannerisms and aspects of of his childhood, so he so he he played the role perfectly there, and uh, my dad and mom really liked him, my dad in particular. Uh, my mom wasn't so sure. She she's a you know the uh, double Pisces, and she had a good, a more refined intuition than my father was a Sagitarian you know adventurer. Uh, but I ended up driving in a uh, driving. They were driving back to New York to catch a plane to go back to Milwaukee, and Tim asked if they could hitch he could hitch a ride with them if they could drop him off at Sing Sing, uh, because he had a friend who was in prison there he wanted to visit, so they actually did a slight detour, took him to the Sing sing prison and then went on their way so and My father would would talk about this years later of meeting Tim under those circumstances you know it was it was part of his uh <laughs> His repertoire of stories, you know, as is mine. So, uh, so that was the uh, parents' visit to Millbrook. But what happened there was I, I, uh, I was there for the summer, and I was planning to live there. And I had one of my first uh, lucid dream experiences, uh, where I, I, the dream, uh, was revealing its intent and content. In real time, as opposed to being kind of a union symbolic, you know, post-dream analysis, I was awake in the dream, mm-hmm. and and I and I knew what the dream meant as I was having it. It was literally informing me, moment to moment. And I, my dream was I was in this lead-lined chamber with this gigantic flywheel, like a ship's wheel, with a big gauge in front of me. And the, the name of the game in this chamber was to let in cosmic radiation by opening the, cranking open the wheel and redlining the gauge. <laughs> and, uh, and I realized that's what I'm doing with my life right now. This, this dream I'm having, I, I knew it as I was dreaming. This was like a, a, a visceral, literal manifestation of what it was, what I was, how I was conducting my life at that moment. And I realized I had to leave. Because I was really playing a suicidal game, you know. You're redlining. Yeah, and the game was to stay mm-hmm. as close to the red line without you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know overdosing or whatever. Right. So I I left and I and so we packed a wagon and went drove back. God, you know, my wife, God bless her, was all loving and supportive. We m- moved back to uh, the Boston area. I, I I took an interim job uh, working on the development of a uh, uh, of a device to uh, a sonar device for blind people that would be embedded in a cane that would give them feedback on objects you know using early sonar experiment. This was in a cane. This was at the mm-hmm. at the uh, in in Newton at the Perkins School for the Blind. So I, I designed and conducted a research. I was there for a couple of years running that research, and then I was given another teaching position at Boston College. So I resumed my academic career, and I kind of, you know, I landed on my feet, and and I was able to support my family and get back. And then I began to study. Uh, I began to practice uh, co- coaching and consulting work with different organizations and individuals, which I continue to do to this day. So I kind of re—I landed on my feet, re- resumed my career, and continued, uh, you know, living my life that way. But there are a lot of other incidents and stories which I'm happy to describe. For example, uh, going to Mexico for the first time with Tim DeZihuatanejo to set up our community air and what happened there with the federales and the whole experiment there which fell apart. Uh, there's another story relating to uh, that the next year where uh, a friend of mine who lives in Boulder here and from that era who I've known since childhood actually, uh, he and I um, uh, <clears throat> were commissioned to go by Tim and Dick to go as, as a scout party to Dominica, this uh, island. This black sand island, which is, has one of the, at that time, and I don't know if it still is the case, but had one, one of the last, if not the only remaining Carib Indian reservations, the original Carib Indian reservations there on this island, which was like a, a scene out of a Conrad novel. You know, it was like a volcano and black sand and amazingly thick, rich jungle. And so we landed there as a beachhead to see if we could form an intentional community a psychedelic community there and there's a whole story about that running into a, the the guy there who who uh, had been an had been american there who had been living there forming his own society and wanted to join with us he had a, a society society called carista it was like a free love society utopian free love society so he said he would help us adapt, and, and he knew people there. And he had been a national hero there on the island because he had rushed into a burning building the year before and rescued a few nuns. Uh, and so he became a national celebrity there, and, and everyone was treating him like royalty, and so he was really well connected. So through, through his auspices, we landed there, and we began talking to people and setting in motion uh, for Tim and Dick and and Ralph and the rest of them to come a month later, once we had kind of cleared the ground, so to speak. But but it turned out that we discovered that this guy actually had been leading uh, simultaneously a political revolt. uh, They're working with some uh, some revolutionary leaders in the island who uh, were... uh, really wanted to overthrow of the colonialist British government that ran the island. This was the end of the British colonial empire, basically. This I mean the end of it in the sense this was the furthest outpost, right? So the the British civil service that were living there were all alcoholics. They were like, you know, ruddy faced and drunk half the day or sleeping and it was hardly anything for them to do in this outpost, right, at the end of the world, in this little poor island in the Caribbean the last remnant of you know the English Empire, and so somehow interval got involved, and there was some reporting that we had landed there and uh, and we were working with this guy, if I mention the Carista guy, and the the powers that be there, uh, the colonial powers they assumed that we were in cahoots with the sky to create a revolution using the psychedelics. As a as a kind of dropping him into the you know, water supply kind of idea, you know, and that was the first thing from our you know we had no conception of that at all. But this whole paranoid scenario developed there, and suddenly we were caught up in a revolution, and uh, and so that involved Interpol and a lot of policing and, uh, and you know and and we we left that island. We were deported from that island in a hurry, basically, you know, and we went to Antigua to because we were offered another base there, and that was a whole other story. Uh, somewhat similar, somewhat different, but a whole other story. We, we ended up on a place, on a spit, uh, where there had been a former World War II Navy base. Uh, the remnants of it had been eaten away by erosion and sandstorms and hurricanes, you know, but there was just a, a few structures left on that place. So we ended up staying there, Exposed to all the elements, you know, and, and trying to figure out what to do next, and uh, one of our team at that point uh, <clears throat> uh, had a had a really bad trip, and uh, and the first thing we knew, this guy Frank was standing. In, he was a very tall guy. He was about like six four, wiry, strong. He was standing at at the door, and like uh, Da Vinci's. Figure, you know, with his arms outstretched, blocking the door, and we couldn't figure out if he was blocking us from leaving or blocking people from coming. It w- wasn't clear at the moment, but uh, he—he was—he wouldn't speak to us. He, he was ferocious. He was like some kind of ferocious deity, and uh, and we were trying to talk to him and cajole and figure out what was going on to try to help him. Suddenly, he bolts and leaves, you know, and he's gone. And, and we don't know what happened, and we're trying to figure out what happens to him. Another character emerges on the scene who is a Hungarian psychiatrist, also with a monocle and a bald head, who is uh, noted and celebrated throughout the Caribbean for his work on, on doing uh, lobotomies throughout the Caribbean. He is like Mr. Lobotomy. And he was was awarded all these prizes from these medical societies and governments in the different Caribbean nations for his work on on the traveling lobotomist. You know, have lobotomy, will travel kind of, you know. So he ends up... We end up figuring that this guy has, has that Fra- our friend, Fra- our guy Frank, has ended up in this guy's clutches and somehow, that he's going to get lobotomized by this, this guy, who we believed was an ex Nazi who was hiding out, you know, because there were a few Nazis hiding out in the Caribbean, mostly in Argentina, but in Ar- a few in, Ar- in, in the Caribbean too. Uh, So we go, finally, we find out that he's been captured by this guy, and he's been put into this mental hospital, which is a stockade in the jungle in in Antigua. And so we go there, and it's literally made of, of, you know, of chicken wire and, and framing. It's like a really primitive place. And he's in a cage. With this old man there with a long white beard who 's psychotic who 's just kind of mumbling and you know kind of gazing at the sky, pretty harmless, and Frank had sobered up at that point pretty, pretty and Frank is is wondering, what the hell have I gotten into you know so we see him there in this cage, literally his cage, so we were able to get him out. And we brought him back to the uh, you know to where we were staying, and then shortly after that we also were deported. We had to leave basically because of all the scandal and everything that was happening there. but there were a lot of you know adventures <laughs> so we gave up on the idea of finding another country at that point that would host our work and support you know and the, although the second year the next year Tim went back to mexico i didn 't join at that trip and and that 's when the Federales came in and busted, and there were a lot of crazy things that happened there. Can you talk more
2: about the your experience in Mexico because I think it 's a part of the story that 's not as well known mm-hmm. um, with the the experiments
1: well i again, I was a graduate student, you know I was married uh, my uh, My son was not born my daughter was 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 uh, not an infant, but she was a little girl a little, a tiny little girl, and uh, she, we brought her. Uh, <clears throat> we lived in a hotel uh, that in uh, Zihuatanejo. I don't know if people have been to Zihuatanejo, but it's a. Ver- have you ever been there? It's a very jungle place and beautiful bay, incredible bay, a pristine place. Uh, uh, it was undiscovered at that point. It was where people who you know were tiring of Acapulco and a lot of people who were tiring of that very early would go there because it, it wasn't well known. And this this hotel, I forgot the name of it, uh, was on a hill, and there was a a, 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 a forgot the technical word a, a vehicle like that would uh, like a, a chairlift that would basically like a ski ski lift, you know, that would kind of go up the hill to drop you off at your at your apartment, right, or your room. So we were up on the hill overlooking this bay, and, and again, we we were taking psychedelics almost daily there. And the place was very fecund and very rich and plants would grow, you know, you'd cut a plant down and overnight it would grow an inch, you know. It was so so rich there. And so one evening I found a scorpion in my daughter's crib, basically. Right. You know, like, right. it gave us pause, you know. Uh, so I don't remember too much about that uh, other than that, you know, we were like tripping like daily there, you know, and really... We started experimenting with, with seeing what tripping daily would, would do basically, you know. And of course, as you know, there you, you build up tolerances, and so you'd have to increase the dosage. Uh, so, uh, but the, the setting there was so powerful, so you know, tropical and rich, and it was in the state, the Mexican state of Guerrero, which was a big bandit state, maybe still is in Mexico. But a lot of violence there, you know, outside of the, the, the tropical resort where we're staying. But it was a major center for uh, for growing marijuana uh, and other drugs. And, and so you had to be really careful driving. You know, uh, there was a, I believe that there was a small airport there, but only a flight maybe once a week. A uh, shuttle flight from another place. You know, it wasn't a direct flight from Mexico City. I think you had to go through somewhere else. So it was hard to get to, and we mostly kind of drove there, you know, jungle roads. It was a really inaccessible place. But once you got there, it was, like, gorgeous, you know, really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and then years later, it became to, became well-known. Uh, Zihuataneo is a, yeah. a resort, destination resort, you know, but that was really early on. Uh, and as I said, the second year, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't part of it. That experience second year i was starting to burn out a little bit from and it, you know was begin. this was before my millbrook experience which i talked about earlier but i was beginning to get a sense that that uh this was probably not a way to live uh, and and to be honest you know millbrook was not a place that was good for children uh you know there was there's a certain amount of narcissism associated with the work we did uh, uh, i would say to be fair you know uh you know, we were, we had the self image of being explorers and we were, and we were like opening up, you know, worlds. Uh, but there could be a kind of, uh, narcissism, I use the word narcissism, a, a certain preoccupation with our own vision, you know, that wasn't the best necessarily for for raising children. You would need a lot of support, and the children were a lot, really ignored a lot there. Uh, they weren't abused, there was nothing like that, but they, it wasn't the best place, and uh, Tim had you know his daughter who later committed suicide, and his son Jack for whom he became estranged later and uh, the good part of that was that that Ramdas or Richard became like a surrogate mom basically to both of his tim's children and uh, the archetype that they played, and I talked about this in a autobiography in a biography of Tim that was written years later by someone who interviewed me was. Richard played the mom, and and Tim played the Irish father. Mm-hmm. Richard was the Jewish mother, and he was the Irish father, and their their fraught relationship, you know, over the years, because Dick, Richard, Ramdas was the responsible adult. Basically, he was taking care of raising the money and making sure people were fed and clothed, and the logistics were working, and he was super responsible. And Tim was, you know, the madcap Irish explorer, right? was breaking through boundaries, and you know, and, and this is the next thing we're gonna do, and and it, it worked well for many, many years, and then it it just stopped working for the two of them, and they began to split, you know, and that happened shortly after uh, they uh, they went to India. So Richard's experience in India, where he became Ramdas through Neil Carroll Baba and you know and that whole part of his life began there when he gave a couple of acid tabs to Neil Karoli Baba and who, who looked at him and said <laughs> oh <laughs> so, or something like that you know and uh, and Tim who went with uh, his bride uh, Nina von Schleiger who was Nina Thurman's mom uh, married later, Bob Thurman, who we knew as an undergraduate student at Harvard, who was kind of on the periphery of what we were doing at that time, along with Andy Weil and uh, Andrew Weil and some other people. But Bob was wonderful. He uh, he was a madcap character f- from the time of his youth. I think he grew up in a wealthy family in New York, and uh, he was always experimenting and playing around. He lost his eye in some kind of madcap accident. He had, you know. When he was young, but he was he was really interested in the work. He was good friends with another Harvard undergraduate there uh, who was working with us, and uh, and of course then again as I said earlier that blew up, you know. But um, a lot of characters, a lot of stories. Uh, I've shared a few of them with you today, you know, and I probably share a few more if you're interested, but. <laughs>
2: And I would be curious what it was like to watch the evolution. Because you started in on this when the only people who knew about psychedelics were as a small group of academics and mm-hmm. the Beats yep. and not all of them. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of it, it was notorious. It was on every news magazine in America. Yep. What was it like to watch it go from unknown to known in all of these different ways?
1: Well, we were we were bemused in part by that, you know, kind of. Observ- participant observers knowing that we were responsible for some of that not all of that because there was a whole merry prankster thing on the west coast that's a whole other story when they came to visit Millbrook you know but uh, so there was this, this coastal stuff going on as you mentioned you know the uh, the early beatniks who were interested who had been reading early accounts of of uh, of poets and 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 artists, you know, were experimenting with mescaline and similar substances in Paris in, in the 30s. Because this isn't new, you know, this is universal. It, it's episodic. It's cyclic. You know, we're experiencing that now—a re- a renaissance of that happening again. Uh, there was an article in the New York Times last week. Did you see the piece on psychedelic guides? It's a major yeah. piece, major piece on that, actually. Uh, yes. Uh, so. So we're witnessing a resurgence of that, but at the, to answer your question, we, we were so into our, the vision and mission of what we were doing and the impact we were having, the impact on our lives, the impact on other people, uh, kind of the opening of the heart, the opening of the mind, uh, reading a lot of literature that connected to spiritual awakenings, uh, including the Gurdjieff work, which I said I would talk about, which I will, and, uh, so in retrospect, as you're asking me the question, I think back about how we kind of did we see our place in history? Did we have any sense of our role? I think we did. I think we had a, a sense that we were like on the bleeding edge of <laughs> of change. Remember, this is Nixon, right? This is like big time. You know, people tend to forget uh, the, with the Trump era, uh, the, the, some of the echoes of the Nixon era, which in some some ways were or even worse, actually. You know, uh, some ways. You got the outcome yet remains to be seen. How that's going to turn out, but uh, uh, so it's hard. You know, when you're in the middle of something, to get a sense of, of 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 your role or place in the larger picture, it takes some years. Historically, I think to have enough enough. Uh, of a back view through the back rear view mirror I guess right or or you can reflect a bit on that and and try to try to be honest about it too and not and you know I mean there with with regard to that you know one of the one of the current complaints uh about Tim is that he kind of ruined it for everybody for 30 years and you know that his his behavior set us back we could have done so much more there's a measure of truth in that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, at one point, I'll la the Gurdjieff story, because it relates to this, uh, Ralph had, uh, we had been reading a lot, and we ran across Uspensky's In Search of the Miraculous, which is kind of the introduction to the Gurdjieff work. And Uspensky uh, quotes Gurdjieff in that book, uh, talking about certain substances that can be, people can take that can help them to wake up, to realize you know, the mechanicality of their, and the robotic nature of their social conditioning. And so Ralph discovered this teacher in New York City named Willem Nyland, who had worked with Gurdjieff uh, yeah, when he was a young man in the 30s, and then a long interview uh, interlude between the, in the, during the Second World War, and then rejoined Gurdjieff for a few years afterwards, had been a senior teacher in the Gurdjieff work, had been a member of the Gurdjieff Foundation, So he discovered him, and and we discovered he was giving group meetings in New York. Uh, I also discovered he would coming to Boston once a month. He had a group in Boston. So I joined that work. And for the next 12 years, I was deeply involved with him and the group in New York and Boston. And at one point, uh, I visited him, a friend of mine, who later went on, Alan Cohn, who later went on to become a... uh, figure in the reagan administration around just say no to drugs campaign he actually created that <laughs> it's another interesting story right because alan had been like deeply involved and then then kind of did a complete like 360 you know or 180 and uh, became a you know, avid anti-psychedelic guy uh and became a clinical psychologist and was responsible for drug rehab and that stuff in New York. And was the "just say no to drugs" was actually his motto that that Nancy Reagan adopted. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of backstories here that people don't know about, you know, including uh, you know uh, when Tim got busted at 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 Millbrook, uh, G. Gordon Liddy was led the team that busted Tim, and later they became friends because they were doing time together in jail, you know.
2: <laughs> the funny part of that story is their handprints are in the concrete in front of Boulder Theater just a mile from here. Really? I yeah, didn't can, know that. You can see both of their handprints because they were the they, – afterwards they did a tour around uh-huh. the country. You yeah. can see it in Tim's uh, newspaper clippings. And they were great together. They liked they, each other. Yeah, the arch, the arch villains of yeah. either side. They, pl-
1: they did hard time together, solitary, big time, you know, because uh, Liddy had led the raid – on Millbrook, which brought him, you know, with I'm like a Zapata gun belts and you know fifty sheriffs and you know searchlights and it was a whole big drama that they did. I wasn't there when it happened, but he, as a result of that, he came to the attention of the Nixon administration, mm-hmm. and they promoted him uh, to the head the office of uh, the drug enforcement, the DEA or version of the DEA. And one of the first things they did, a la Trump, is they shut the border down in Tijuana for like 48 hours or whatever it was. And it caused an international rift between the State Department and Mexico. And because, you know, there's so much commerce that happens there, it was like a big deal. But they were like strip searching people at the border for drugs, you know, it was a whole calamity. And it was a it was like a, you know a political calamity you know that that came out of the fact that Liddy was actually appointed and given this position in the justice department so then at when, the, when Watergate happened and, and he was implicated in all of that and was convicted, he and Tim met in prison. I, I forgot in California which prison it was, and uh, they were doing hard time and over the course of a couple of years they they kind of developed a level of respect for each other that cons will often do who are doing similar hard time you know they're completely different ideologies and then they went on tour and they would entertain people with their you know their their racon their rep repartee so to speak you know and when they would do their public. i didn't know that they, they they did it in boulder and that their handprints were on like like it's like hollywood star right kind of thing
2: yeah, and some of their performances are on YouTube if anybody wants yeah, to listen to yeah, them. Yeah. Step back in time. Yeah.
1: So, um, anyway, coming back to the Gurdjieff work. So, Nyland, Mr. Nyland knew that of my background, you know, because uh, we were pretty transparent and he was super conscious. And uh, so, one thing led to another. And he said to me one day, I said, he said I would like to meet Tim, I'd like to talk with him. Uh, He said, what you guys are doing there is really important, but you're fucking it up. He didn't say that that way, but, but he, he said, you're, you're ruining what could be a very, very important piece of research on the use of these substances for mental health and a number of other areas. It was very early. He he knew that. Mm -hmm. And so I talked to Tim and he agreed. And so we had a meeting, uh, Nyland came up from New York City with a group of his students, and we met in in on the grounds of the Dietrich Estate, you know, in this sumptuous living room, in this building, and <clears throat> this home, and uh, they proceeded to dialogue. And Nyland spoke to Tim, and and again reiterated his point that this was research was really important. Uh, that that he what he needed to do was to create a scientific organization to house the work. Uh, that uh, <clears throat> that the this, this 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 vision really was uh, needed to be done basically it needed to be implemented, but Tim wouldn't listen to it. At that point, Tim, you know, again, he had this very strong, sometimes impulsive aspect. Uh, this uh, this kind of self-image of the visionary. You know, you got to understand that Tim was like a black Irishman. It comes from the Brendan Bahan school of black poetry and, you know, and kind of, it's like a fuck you to any authority, left, right, or center. It doesn't make any difference to him. (laughs) You know, if you're exercising authority, you don't get much mileage with him. And this comes out of his early days at West Point, the story about how he, you know, he violated the West Point canon and was put on suspension for a year, a silent treatment, and lasted the whole year because he smuggled a woman into his room or something, and you know, and I don't know, it was what the actual. This is all in his biography, an autobiography. But uh, they they didn't kick him out. They put him on suspension. The, the the punishment was that nobody could speak to him for a year. He lasted the year. The day before his sentence was over, he quit. So he spayed the whole year and then did a major fuck you. By, by staying the whole year and leaving. That was Tim, that was like in a, in a nutshell, really. You know, he would, that's how he, so he, uh, he liked Nyland and he respected Nylon, but his vision was to transform society. The, playing the game of science, was, he was beyond that at that point, in his own mind. So, uh, so that was the end of that. And, but Nylon shared with me that he, he admired Tim, he liked him, he liked the, reb, the rebel in him. He liked the fact that he was that he was uh, you know pushing the boundaries of social convention and social you know kind of social conditioning, but uh, he felt that 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 what we're doing was potentially so important that it needed to be given safer safer harbor through a different vehicle, which is essentially what maps has now been doing for a bunch of years. They really took that and that idea and, and have a, culturated, institutionalized it in a form that's made it possible now for important research to actually happen and and to prove the efficacy of these substances in many different ways. So I'm finding this really interesting. At this stage of my life, I'm 82, Uh, I'll be 82 next month, and uh, I'm still vertical and, as you can see, fairly alert. And to me, it's it's like it's watching the wheel turn again now, as as we're coming around the second iteration of, of psychedelics. And I'm I'm curious, I'm interested actually in seeing if there's something I might be able to do in this area. I I, have a, I don't have a strong need for it, uh, but I'm I'm interested uh, in kind of going back into not so much into the work on trauma and so on. I'm more interested in some aspects of. Of creativity and other aspects of that, you know, uh, and also around political leadership and things like that. Uh, if you look at the history of, of breakthroughs in science, the paradigm shifts all come from from a deep experience of consciousness. The, the next 20 years are mopping up operations where people do testing and so on, you know. But the the real breakthroughs, whether they're Newton or Einstein or Bohm or or Leary, or what have you, they come through these transformational experiences uh, and uh, and we know, for example, the, the discovery of DNA came from that. There are a number of other breakthroughs that have happened. Uh, Steve Jobs was very influenced by his exposure to acid and his correspondence with Hoffman and and, and, and the and the Zen experiences of the kind of minimalist Japanese culture which impacted his his design sensibilities. So I'm interested, you know, and if when if and when the time is right, if I'm still mobile and alive, I would love to explore an opportunity if one came up where we could in the right circumstances could could do that some research in that area again, you know, would be interesting.
2: And it would make a lot of sense. It's some of the most important of the early work that happened that hasn't been replicated very well, mm-hmm. is the work and the creativity. And in some ways it's so obvious, um, but another, it really needs some scientific rigor to make yes. people believe.
1: Yes, and also I would say revisiting the work on on, on recidivism, and, on, and now there's a new prison reform initiative starting. There might be a window to be able to re-explore that. I understand there's one researcher in New York, perhaps, I don't know where, and I don't remember exactly who was interested in that, the work that, that we did with Walter Penke, the psychiatrist, uh, theologian on the Good Friday experiment. I was part of that, by the way. I didn't talk about that today. But, you know, I was I joined in that experiment, which was pretty remarkable. And uh, Houston Smith, the famous theologian, was part of our team. He he took LSD with Tim. Uh, you know, uh, Zaman Schachter, who lived here in Boulder for many years, who was a great uh, teacher of Jewish mysticism. Uh, I knew him way back when uh, in Cambridge. Uh, I actually helped, helped connect Tim and Zalman, and Zalman had his first psychedelic session in a Vedic ashram in Cohasset on the south shore of Boston with a, a student of, of Ramakrishna, a woman guru teacher there. Uh, and so here 's this irish <laughs> this madcap Irishman, this Jewish mystic, and this Vedic Hindu teacher uh, doing acid in the ashram you know and this is where Zaman had his experience of the what 's called in Jewish mysticism, the Shehena, the uh, mystical feminine descending right? he had that ex- he had that experience he had spent years earlier in 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 the New York Talmudic. Uh, the new york uh, uh you know orthodox scene basically but this was the first time the uh, you know he actually had the experience so when i moved to boulder years ago and and then, then i discovered he was i think yeah he moved here first i've been here about you know about 14 years and so we reconnected and he was he would always speak very publicly and 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 with great praise about Tim and his own experiences he didn't hide it he was he was very forthcoming about about the role of psychedelics in his own development you know so <laughs>
2: And can you talk more about that history? Because a lot of people think about the Vedic tradition with psychedelics, but, you know, the Jews are still so involved with the entire scene. Yes. Um, it's the, the drug world and the sex world both are just, the people <laughs> are there uh, for some reason. And can you talk about how Jewish mysticism and those thoughts seem to play into this?
1: I don't really know. Uh, you know, it's uh, maybe as a, you know, as an ethnicity, as a race, as a culture, I don't know what we would call us, but... You know, we have a, maybe a propensity for, for, the, uh, for that. More than other people? I don't know. I don't know. But there certainly have been a lot of us involved in, you know, the Bujus, the Hindus, and the psychedelics, and that, that's continued, you know. Uh, when I first, as I told the story earlier about coming to, to uh, the Harvard and meeting Tim, I had a background in philosophy, my parents were were conventional uh, religious Jews but had not very much around any kind of mystical orientation at all. Uh, I first got some glimpse of that early on through, through uh, you know, through marijuana, basically, through cannabis. And, and, and certainly uh, when I discovered bebop, that was like, you know, that was sort of like a mystical transformation, you know. Uh, and I, I knew a lot of those players early on. I, when I, I spent, I didn't talk about this, but I spent ten years in the music business actually, along the way. So, <laughs> and uh, starting in uh, in the early '70s through up to uh, uh, about '87 or '85, uh, it was about a ten, eleven-year period. I, I ran a recording studio in Boston called Intermedia. And it was on Newberry Street, uh, right, you know, uh, right between Mass Avenue and Hereford Street, I think, is the other one. It's right in the, you know, at that point, it was also a high-end place in Boston. It was a recording studio that had been built by two people uh, way ahead of its time, was very, very advanced. They had, uh, it wasn't digital. We were still using two-inch Ampex analog tape. But we had like shoebox-sized Dolby noise reduction equipment there—a you know, wall of Dolby, which you now you you can put on a, you know, <laughs> on a centimeter of of electronics. So, and I was I was in that studio that day mixing a uh, recording of. Uh, I have background in audio production, by the way, so and audiovisual production, so. Uh, I was mixing a recording of of a Tim spoken voice album, uh, like an audio collage of Tim, which got released on Rhino Records years later. It's a, you know, it's a multi-track Tim reading stuff and voices and music. It's all blended, kind of a psychedelic audio collage, basically. So I discovered the studio was going out of business, uh, because they they had built this very high-end studio with Bolt, Bermick, and Newman, which was this... Uh, at that time, uh, the highest level acoustic consulting firm in the country, based in Boston. And they built a floating floor in a beautiful studio right in on this wonderful street in, in, uh, in Boston. So I, I went back, and we were taking our company public at that time. And uh, so we had some money, and, 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 and I said, yeah, we ought to consider buying the studio. We can get it for nothing. And my colleagues, uh, Garrett Stern, who was the head of USCO, and you know about Gerd Stern. That's a whole other wing of the story, which I haven't talked about. And we formed a company, Intermedia, based on the work that Gerd and, and his colleagues did in Woodstock, New York. Cause we, they later met Tim and us, and we did a series of shows in New York, Steppenwolf, and we did a series of psychedelic shows using Gerd's multi-image displays and kaleidoscopic imagery. And, you know, people dropping acid and coming to the performances. And so that was a whole other piece of that. So Garrett and I and, and George Liftwin, the guy who and I mentioned earlier, was part of our team who went to the Harvard Business School. We formed this business called Intermedia. And uh, so we bought the studio, and I was put in charge of the studio. Because I had a background as a bebop drummer and as a musician, and and interested in music, and so I was the most qualified, so to speak, you know, <laughs> not really qualified. So I had to learn the ropes pretty quickly. I I brought in a guy who became well known in Hollywood, in L.A. as a music producer, uh, and uh, so we ended up running that, and I ended up doing uh, Aerosmith's first album in my studio, and they were like a. They were uh, street kids from you know from north from South Shore of Boston, basically, uh, who uh, had a demo. They came in with a four track demo, and uh, they wanted to make a deal. They had a, a drunken Irish manager who was like you know really messing up. But I liked the music, and I you know I wasn't a rock and roller, but I I, I saw the potential. I heard the potential in their music, so I arranged to get them a producer. Uh, from New York. It was an Englishman named Adrian Barber, uh, who I had met through my friend Michael Kamen, who was the founder of the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble, and and led that group for years, and it went on to become a very prolific music writer for in Hollywood. He wrote, he wrote the music for many famous films, and uh, he died at the age of 55 in London of a massive heart attack, you know, at the height of his career. But we would vacation together in the Caribbean and play music together. And wonderful guy. And uh, so I, I met Adrian through Michael. Adrian had produced a few Creams albums. Was this maniac Irish, you know, psychedelic <laughs> character? Uh, and he was the perfect person to to uh, both. He was an engineer and a producer. So uh, they liked him, and they came in and we we produced the whole album. Uh, the first album, which was produced for Columbia Re- Records, and and then they delivered the master to Columbia, and they released the album. It didn't. People don't know this. It didn't do that well. So they, I, with my help, they fired. They they fired the manager. They got another. They got New York representation of, of people who were real pros in music, and Columbia reconsidered, and they released a single from the album, which was Dream On. Which became a gigantic hit and launched their career, you know. And my son Michael, you know, was he was like a ten-year-old sweeping the floor of the studio and helping out, and you know. So it was it was a interesting period. I have photos from that period with uh, with my in my beatnik, you know, aura. And uh, so there were a lot of a lot of music that came out of that. Uh, Bonnie Raitt's second album, Boston. Uh, a whole bunch of uh, jazz recordings that came out of the studio. We were at the center of the, of the so-called Boston music scene. In fact, there's a book that just came out a few months ago, based on the lyrics of Van Morrison uh, tune, that t- describes that whole history in Boston during that during the '60s, including my studio and the psychedelics and the prison and the the uh, Good Friday experiments. Uh, I forgot the lyric, the the famous lyric from Van Morrison. Uh, one of his spiritual lyrics, you know, was in that, because he lived in, he came to Boston, lived there for a number of months during that period with a with different band members. So, so that's a whole other, you know, part of the story around the music business. And I spent 10 years in, in that business before I realized that that was also a potential blind alley. Too many late nights, too much cocaine, too much, carrying on you know and I I was trying to be a, a dad and you know and keep a family together too and it was I was a you know an anomaly I was like a PhD from Harvard running a recording studio in Boston and working with rock and rollers but I was also interested in in other forms of music and I had a friend who I met in New York who became a really well known record producer Alan Douglas he was a legendary character in jazz production and uh, had recorded Mingus and Monk and, and many other people. The Last Poets—I don't know if you've heard of them. They were the first group to really to really create, uh, uh, you know, uh, essentially uh, rap, right? Uh, they were early and they were really gifted. So, Al and I became friends, and he had, and he was doing a spoken voice recording of Malcolm X and Lenny Bruce. So I, that was my exposure early on to these characters and that and that work. So when I en- ended up inheriting or buying the studio, uh, Alan was coaching me on, on different projects and things. I spent a lot of time in New York with him, and um, including recording Jimi Hendrix on the sly in a four-track studio that he had when Hendrix was under contract with you know other people, which he then re-released years later, mixing in other tracks, and he created a whole scandal and suits from the Hendrix estate and so on, but Allen was a legendary uh, guy who had incredible taste in music, you know, and really, really was recording really uh, brilliant artists way before they were discovered, including some great legendary jazz artists, you know. And so he was a big influence in introducing me to the music business. So when the, when that studio, when the opportunity to do the studio came up, I, I was you know, with his guidance and, and some of the contacts. So I got to know a lot of a lot of uh, heavy hitters in the music industry including Ahmed Aragon and people like that. So one artist came into the studio one day by the name of Paul Pina. If you've heard of him, check him up on, check it out on Google. He's a blind artist, uh, was, was, uh, grew up on Cape Cod from Cape Verdean parents, had, was an amazing artist who had uh, mastered Many different guitar idioms, twelve-string and Spanish guitar, and rock and roll and blues. He was on the folk circuit at that time, uh, opening in the New York in the Newport Folk Festival. People got wind of him, like Bonnie Raitt and other people, and this said, "This guy is the next Stevie Wonder." I mean, he really had it. So I produced his first album for Capitol Records, and uh, I'm trying my hand at producing, you know, and uh, the album did okay, wasn't great. Uh, At that, it was the point when when uh, when capital was being bought uh, by uh, uh, the British label who were who were who were launching the Beatles. So we got our project got lost in that, you know, that that, during that transition. But Albert Grossman, who was the manager of Bob Dylan and Janis Joplin and the band and uh, uh, the Weavers and you know he was an accountant from Chicago who grew up on the folk scene and got interested in being a manager and and then became at that time the most powerful manager in the music business he had his own label Bearsville records that was distributed by Warner Brothers he owned the town of the hamlet of Bearsville next to Woodstock and his recording studio and his homes there that he rented to Dylan and Joplin. He had a kind of an indentured servant model of the music business, you know, where he owned these people, he owned their contracts. So a classic Hollywood, you know, kind of you know, indent I call it indentured servitude model until they eventually all broke with him. So he got wind of this artist, Paul Pina, that I that I ended up managing. He had heard the first recording, he liked it. So he came to me, and, and he wanted to make a deal to record a second album. At that point, I knew that I didn't have the chops to actually produce it well enough, so I hired a, a friend of mine who I had recently met, a, guy named, a musician named Ben Sidron, was is well-known for his work with many artists. He was Steve Miller's keyboardist. Uh, he wrote a lot of tunes. He's also a jazz guy and, and also a Ph.D., uh, uh, he's written a lot, he's been on NPR, he had various shows. So we became friends. He introduced me to Miles and Tony Williams and a little bit later. And uh, so I recruited Ben to produce the album, and Albert agreed. Now, it was very unusual, because at that time, I was a little guy in Boston owning a recording studio, and it was unheard of to do what was called a Master Purchase. Master Purchase is where you create the album with your own producer, with your own ideas, and you deliver it to the label to distribute it. Now, that artists who sell millions of records and who spend years laboring to get to that point generally are, are given that option at a certain point. Not even then, often. Okay? In the old days, it, was, it, wasn't, it just wasn't done. For some reason, Albert agreed to it. I put it out there in a kind of, you know, in a fit of my own egotism, and he said, okay. And we signed a contract, and I had the sense actually to put in the contract what was called a release clause, which is basically that barring anything having to do with, with a technical insufficiency in the recording, he had to release it, and he agreed to that. So we brought Ben Sidrin in and over the course of the year, we produced an album with, with uh, Jerry Garcia playing steel guitar and the Persuasions doing backup vocals as a fucking brilliant album. And uh, we gave it to Albert and he wouldn't release it. And he claimed it was technically unsatisfactory and it w- wasn't, it was recorded in this really high-end studio. It was, it was perfectly technically satisfactory. The game he was playing all along was to string me along, uh, knowing at the end of the day that when he threatened the suit, and he's got like, you know, 50 grand a month attorneys on retainer, I'm a little guy in Boston, we would collapse in the face of that. And in fact, we did. Uh, So he wouldn't release the album. We wouldn't give him the master. And so we were in a, uh, you know, a standoff for the next 25 years, basically. Uh, and Paul's career took a nosedive at that point. So he moved to San Francisco. He wrote this coon called Jet Airliner that Steve Miller <laughs> recorded about that whole experience or part of that experience. If you listen to the lyrics, you can hear it in the lyrics. And and Steve Miller went on, uh, because the drummer on the date, Gary Malabar, who had worked with uh, a number of other artists, including Rand Morrison, and the bass player whose name I forgot who had worked with Miles on Bitches Brew and also on a lot had worked with, had been Dylan's bass player uh, off and on. So these are the, this was the the team we had recording and Ben Sidron doing the uh, production. So we delivered a perfectly good master. So Gary Malabar, the drummer, took uh, the cassette tape of some of the tunes to Steve Miller. And knowing that that you know that uh, <clears throat> Ben Citroen was involved and ben and and Steve Miller were old friends and, and, and con- they both went to the University of Wisconsin together and toured together in the early days. Miller fell in love with the material and released Jet airliner on his own label on, on, on not his own label on his on one of his early al- earlier albums became a gigantic hit it became platinum and gold and and continues to this day to be uh, produce about twelve to fifteen thousand dollars a year in royalties, publishing royalties, because it's become part of the, of the you know the rock and roll, American songbook basically. So you hear it everywhere. You hear it in high school marching bands. You hear it in elevator music. You hear it in movie soundtracks. So, I worked out a publishing arrangement with Paul, and I ended up benefiting. Significantly, from you know, from the royalties from that, that from based thanks to Miller, and then quite a few years later, about ten years ago, now nine years ago, my attorney in New York, who helped me put the deal together originally, we said, let's release the album. We still have the master, so we had to go back. It, meanwhile, Albert had died, and, and his wife and the estate—they didn't care anymore. It was old news to them. So we got the rights back and we re-released the album and again it didn't it wasn 't a massive commercial success, but it was a tremendous artistic success and People still write about it and you 'll see it referenced all over the internet actually with you know you see it on youtube it 's on youtubes it 's on apple apple music it 's on Spotify you can find it every, all, pieces from the first album that I produced and the second album there so and paul was a one Paul Pina was a wonderful. Very insecure, very gifted. Uh, I remember one night, uh, Stevie Wonder got interested, and I had a call, uh, a brief call with him before I put Paul on to speak with him. He was, the people, the artists who heard that album, the first album, the second album, They, as, as did Albert Grossman, they saw in him a talent of the level of a, of a Stevie Wonder, of a Ray Charles, and he was. Uh, but he got caught up in the machinations of the politics of the business, you know. And Albert saw it, and that he wanted me out from the beginning. He put up with me. He gave us this deal, only knowing fully well that at a certain point, he was a very clever man, very cunning. And at the end of the day, he knew that he could basically overwhelm me with the, with the legal threats, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and that Paul was a, you know, kind of a... Uh, you know, victim of all that. But and at one point, Albert said to me, he said, look, I'll, I'll, I'll make a deal with you. You'll come out whole on this. I just want to take this over, and I'll do a much better job of building this career than you will. He was probably right. So I went to Paul. I said, here's the deal. Albert has made this offer. I'm going to be okay, Paul. You know, don't so worry about me because we always, Paul, he was, <laughs> Paul was always concerned about me. One day, for example, we were doing a concert in Venezuela. Uh, Big concert in which uh, Paul and, and Michael Kamen from the New York Rock Ensemble and Roger Powell, who I produced one of his the first uh, synthesizer albums combining acoustic piano and synthesizer, he went on to uh, become very well known. He I forgot the artist. Another one of the artists that that uh, Albert managed. Uh, he played with the band Utopia. You know that band. Uh, forgotten the artist now. He's still around. But uh, one day we were doing this concert, you know, and and uh, there was this ramp, and I had taken you know something that night, and and we were walking on the ramp. If you fell down, you could kill yourself, hurt yourself, and and Paul, you know, I'm on the outside to to protect Paul, and I start to slip, and, he, and I have he, you know I have his elbow, he has my elbow, he pulls me off the, and he's blind, <laughs> he pulls me off the. <laughs> the edge of the abyss you know so we have that kind of relationship so when i went to him with albert's offer uh you know i said look paul i'll be okay you know in fact i'll be i'll do very well here and this guy can really make your career he said i'm not going to be his house nigger paul said that because he already knew that, you know, what the price of working with Albert was, a la Dylan, Joplin, the early people that were basically, as I said, indentured servants. They all broke with him sooner or later because it was of his style. And Paul didn't want to have anything to do with that at all. So he said, you're my guy. And, you know, win, loss, or whatever, uh, you're my guy. So we stuck together until just we couldn't. And at that point, I had been like 10, 11 years into the music business. I as I said earlier, was too many late nights, too many uh, unsavory characters, although there were some wonderful people that I met along the way, really wonderful people, but also a lot of low lives, you know. A music business has got a lot of those, a lot of racketeering and stuff in, that, in the early days in that business. But I had an interest in other forms of music as well. I was interested in, in Indian music and world music. Through Alan Douglas, who I mentioned earlier, this record producer... He got interested in Indian music and he sent me to India with a Nagra tape recorder, you know, the early, you know, production quality Nagras, you know. And I traveled around, I recorded a lot of esoteric and abstruse Indian music. Pandit Trinath, who became well-known in esoteric music circles in the late 60s, who was a vocalist of Vedic chanting, he ended up working with Brian Eno and... and, uh, and Terry the uh, uh, ambient music scene you know they they would weave mm-hmm. our computer loops of indian ragas into their into their ambient sound stuff you know and so so that was another aspect of that experience and then being in india and exploring different aspects of of um, you know of ganja and different ways of preparation. I had a, a, a guide there who took me through India, uh, who was a yogi. I was a member of a, uh, a sect called the Naga Sadhus, which are the, you know, they wear loincloths and they they're all tall. They're like they're like ras, Rastas. They have knotted hair. The tall, muscular guys with with a uh, tri, trident, you know, and. Uh, their ashram is in a place called one of their two or three ashrams. Major ones are in a little town called Bareilly, which is northeast of of New Delhi. And my friend Harish Johari, who was at that time was a well-known sculptor and poet in northern India, had created Hanuman sculptures all over temples in northern India. And Hanuman, by the way, is is a favorite saint of, of Ramdas, basically. You know, has in many people. So. So he was well-known, and he, was a, he lived in Burelli in his family compound. He had been there for many, many years on the edge of the, of the Naga ashram. So one night, uh, he took me there, You know, I Indian clothing. I was there about six weeks and traveled with him, a lot of mysterious, marvelous experiences. He took me into this ashram, and these guys are on ganja 24-7. They take it smoking. They use they use uh, you know uh, they make tea extracts. They're they're constantly high on ganja and they use it for, as part of their meditation and part of their they they have a belief system. They're in, reincarnated warriors and they look like it you know and they're doing penance in this lifetime for other stuff. So I'm <laughs> in the middle of this ashram you know and. Uh, there are thousands of bells of all sizes and shapes on the limbs of these trees. And at midnight, they do a puja, a ceremony, and they shake the limbs, they shake the trees, and there's this cacophonous sound of these overtones and bells going on, and they're hitting a drum, a large drum, with the rhythm of a human heartbeat. Boom, 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 by these bells are going on. And the thing is completely deafening and psychedelic, like beyond, you know, it's mind-boggling. And I, you know, I'm like really on major doses of ganja, and uh, and sitting around a campfire with these old babajis and these old gurus, and you know, they just kind of welcomed me in because of my friendship with with Harish. So, <laughs> so there were a lot of like side stories there, you know, from from all of that. So, and
2: you mentioned that you also got to meet the Beats that you were reading about.
1: Yeah, earlier. yeah. Well, uh, the second section or third section, I don't remember. Was also with Tim where Alan Watts, Alan, well, Alan Watts, that's a whole other story. But Alan Ginsburg came to this session along with his lover, Peter Olafsky. And this was the famous night where they uh, decided to call Khrushchev and called off the Cold War. So, and I remember that incident that night where, where uh, this was that same house in Newton that I mentioned earlier. It had this big staircase in the center of the foyer where you walked in, you know, kind of classic design of mansions. At one point, like two or three in the morning, I don't know when it was, Peter and and Alan walked down the stairs stark naked, their arm around each other, and announcing that they had just tried to call Khrushchev at the Kremlin, but they wouldn't put him through. (laughs) And they, you know, they wanted to call off the Cold War through the psychedelic, you know, through the psychedelic vision essentially. So we, at that night for them, there were other people. There, Aldous Huxley's son was there. There were a couple of New York models who were hooked on heroin. Uh, there were a, a number of other people. There were always these characters, uh, you know, larger than life characters from fashion, from entertainment, from politics, from academia. It was just kind of circling through, you know, and joining our sessions. That was my second or third session that night. Frank Barron was there. I remember that, and Ralph. And uh, so that was another example of... (laughs) (laughs) Alan Watts came and spent a semester at Harvard as a guest instructor at Tim's Invitation. And, you know, we we joined with him in a number of sessions. He was a character. Tim always called him the... uh, Sports reporter of the spiritual scene—that was his his kind of damning with damning with faint praise kind of appellation for Alan, you know, who was a heavy drinker. People don't know this actually. Alan was an alcoholic, straight ahead alcoholic, and um, but he was functioning. You know, he could function, but sometimes when he when he was high on alcohol, he could be very abusive, as Tim could be sometimes and didn't show up very well in long-term relationships, you know, marriages and things like that. Uh, But he was incredibly engaging and brilliant and funny and a raconteur, and, you know, you forgave him a lot for these other, (laughs) you know, idiosyncrasies because of just who he was, you know, he could show up. Then another character showed up early on, that marked the transition from psilocybin to LSD. His name was Michael Hollingshead. He's a character from that era.
2: The, maybe the character from that era. Yes,
1: one of the major... Key. So one day he shows up in Cambridge with a suicide note that is delivered to Tim. I'm Michael Hollingshead. I'm from London. I turned on the Beatles... Uh, You know, I've gone through psychoanalysis with Anna Freud, blah, blah, blah. He gives a whole litany of of his biography, and I'm desperate. And if I don't hear from you in the next 24 hours, I'm going to kill myself. So, of course, Tim reaches out to him. He has a mayonnaise jar full of acid, basically, that he brought from England. He's close friends with Huntington Hartford, who was a socialite in New York. There's a building named after him in Columbus Circle. used to be the Huntington Hartford Museum. Who uh, was procured young models from england michael 's job was to procure women for Huntington Hartford, so it was like a whole scene and uh, he shows up in Cambridge and he introduces Tim to LSD, which is you know now another dimension right beyond the uh, psilocybin so within weeks, we're, all of us then have our first asset experience after about two years or so of, of psilocybin. And that opens up a whole other dimension, you know. That's when things got really wacky at that point, because it, psilocybin, there was still a modicum of research and control and, and you know, experimentation and writing up accounts of, of experiments and things. Uh, when, when LSD came on, it was a whole other... It <laughs> just blew the lid off, right?
2: And part of the problem was undergrads were starting to get their hands on the. Well, that was they uh, that really was uh, frowned
1: on. Where Richard got fired, basically because of uh, an undergraduate who was the son of a famous diamond family in New York, one of the major diamond retailer families in New York. His father was also one on the board of directors of, It was called the Board of Overseas of Harvard. Uh, this guy had a gay relationship with, with, uh, with uh, Richard as an undergraduate. Uh, which at that time was also, you know, pretty far out, combined with psychedelics, because Richard had agreed not to give psychedelics to undergraduate. He violated that agreement on this instance. He wouldn't give psychedelics to Andrew Weil, which was the basis for Andrew's discontent and, and in his attack, because uh, he felt excluded from, you know, uh, from that. But for this other young guy, he did, so... Uh, uh, this is the the winston family, Ronnie winston, the winston diamond you 've probably heard of that family, right so they 're a famous New York wealthy family, so Ron Winston was the kid, and his father was on the board of overseas and so the father went to, to uh, Edgar Pusey, or I may not have the first name. Pusey was the president of Harvard at the time and 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 that was the last straw, and so they fired Richard, and Tim just stopped showing up for work. So they, he basically, I don't know if they ended up firing him or not or his contract elapsed. He just stopped coming, you know. But but it was Richard who had actually violated the agreement. And Andrew Weil, who blew up the story, basically, he was writing for the Harvard Crimson. So one day I'm sitting in, in uh, I just happened to be at the right spot. I was sitting in this coffee house in the middle of Harvard Square. And uh, I'm sitting next to, a table where Andrew Weil is with a few of his buddies, and he's talking about doing a mescaline deal with them, and I'm overhearing it. And he doesn't know who I am. I know who he is. So I'm hearing the deal, and in the middle of while he's he's reporting on the crimson around the violations of, of you know Richard and so on. He's blowing the whistle on our work. He's doing his own drug deals on the side at the same time, right? So I went back to Tim and Dad. I said, this is, this is who this guy is. This is what's happening. So that was the beginning of, you know, of a rupture that went on for the next 30 years. I think he and Richard had a uh, a rapprochement years later when he visited Maui. Uh, Tim, at the end of the day, you know, always saw things in a more cosmic scheme. He just saw this as all just characters in this cosmic dance, you know, and he didn't... Uh, I don't think he, he held Andrew person after he did for a while, but after a while he just, you know, didn't care anymore. Richard held on to it for a long time. But so so he was another character in this play, you know, many characters. Like a Strindberg production, you know. So, you know, who's in the audience, who's in the cast or, you know, what's going on. So anyway, there you have it. <laughs> or most of it.
2: <laughs> Gunther, I just want to say thank you so much for this great piece of history. It was really a pleasure to learn all of these insider uh, pieces of the puzzle.
1: <laughs> My pleasure.